Now, I may be a little biased because I get to spend a lot of time up here with him, but uh, Gage, fantastic job on the bass this morning, dude. Absolutely. So the Christmas season is upon us. But what I want you to do is I want you to take just a moment. I want you to kind of sit back and I want you to take a deep breath. And I want you to focus on three things. The sights, the smells, and the sounds that come with this type of year. Picture in your mind the sights of the Christmas lights that are donning the houses, on the Christmas trees, on the garland. The sights of people rushing around, laughing, having a good time. The sounds of the kids running around playing with their new shiny toy trucks. Everything that they've dreamed for and hoped for. The sounds of laughter. The sounds of family members coming together and enjoying tales of years gone by. Sharing memories. Sharing traditions. The smells of all those good things that we long for this time of year. The cookies, the breads, the pastries. And if you're part of my household, it's the eggnog. And the taste and the smell that comes from that. We come together this time of year to celebrate these things and the birth of our Savior. And we long for it. We, we're excited for it. We look forward to it. But with all these joyful and fun things, there's also stress. Because we're running around with last minute things, whether it's a concert or a musical or a play or a Christmas party or a family get together and we've got to travel or people are traveling in either way and stresses start to rise. But amongst the stresses, we see the traditions, those things that we hold so dear inside of our families. And for me, there's two that we bring forth from our families into mine and Christie's. And that is, number one, we sit around with all the lights off, Christmas tree is lit, the candles are glowing, and we listen to the words of Silent Night. And we let those words just sink in. And then we open up our Bibles and we turn to Luke chapter 2, and we read the narrative of the birth of our Messiah. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Who is the Messiah, the Lord? This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. You know, year after year, we sit around and we, we read that passage. And it amazes me every time where when we come to it, there's something new and exciting to see. There's a new insight. There's a new perspective. There's a, a new word from God. There's something new to explore. And this morning, as we open up our Bibles, we're going to take a little bit of a journey together through time and Scripture and see how the day that we are fixing to celebrate, that special night in Bethlehem, is the fulfillment of a promise that God made years ago. When we approach the Bible, when we approach God's Word, what we need to both see and understand is that everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is the gospel. Because everything from the very beginning of Genesis 1 all the way to the end is God. It's God's love. It's God's grace. It's God's mercy. It's His power that is being poured out to us. 
Everything leading up to the birth is foretelling the birth, as we're going to see today. Everything after the birth is what happens because of the birth. It's the gospel, the entirety of God's word. And throughout the Old Testament, for hundreds of years, prophets were, were prophesying that a Messiah was going to be born to us, to save us, to redeem us, to connect us eternally back to the Father. And this culminates with a special event in a town called Bethlehem where the baby is born. And God's promises are being fulfilled. But the people would have to wait. They would have to be patient. They would have to trust. Now that's a concept that many of us struggle with in our day-to-day lives. And part of that is because we've advanced so far technologically that we are not happy unless we have the information in a second. How many of you remember as a kid, if you wanted to look up a movie time, you had to go to this thing called a newspaper? Uh Uh-huh. Eric, I know you know what I'm talking about. We had to come to a newspaper. And you had to look and see which theater played what movie you wanted to see and what the times were. Or you called the theater. And that got annoying. Because if anybody in the country was calling that theater, it seems you got a busy tone. And so you would dial the number because you wanted to call. And, you know, you'd have to call four or five different theaters to find out which one was playing what you wanted to see. But when you would call and you'd hear, eh, 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 or hit that, dial, redial, and keep going until you got through. And it would take you all day and you'd miss the showtime. Or if you didn't have... A normal phone, as a lot of people know now, and you had one of these. The busy tone came after taking that big disc, sticking your finger, going, look at the five, look at the six, all the way around. If you had to dial a nine, whew, that was crazy. A busy tone that comes to you for that, you go, what's on TV? Because you don't want to keep going. Many of us have grown with this kind of a instant gratification in our lives today. And we forget things like this. Or when we needed information, we had to go to these big books that a lot of us have on our shelves that are covered with dust right now. They're called encyclopedias. And you had to find where it was that you were looking for what you were looking for. Or you had to go to the library which was often downtowns, and if you didn't drive, you had to find somebody that could take you just to get information. And right now we have everything on the tip of our fingers. Yes, technology is good, but what it has done is it has actually trained our minds that we can get what we want, when we want, how we want it, where we want it, and exactly how quick we want to get it. And this idea of waiting has gone by the wayside. And we've become impatient. And this is not a new concept because the people in the Old Testament had to do just that. They had to wait. You know, the year 2020 hasn't helped with this because we're constantly looking for that next bit of information. We're constantly looking for things that will help us get back to what we consider normal. And we get stressed and we get frustrated if it's not exactly what we want to hear or exactly when we get, want the information. 
And what happens is we become so stressed, we become so much looking to the future that we miss the blessings that God has put right in front of us. We miss the family time that we have right in front of us. We miss the joy of the laughter of the smells because we're looking for the future. The people in the Old Testament were looking for the future and they were missing what was in front. And they were feeling like God was distant, but he wasn't. He was right there with them as we're going to see as we go through. We're going to see that God is true and he's faithful and he always, always keeps his promises. It's just his promises are on a, operating on a different timeline than we operate on. And we have to understand that his timing, his plan, his will is different than ours. Because ours are driven by selfish desires. His is driven by eternity and love. Now when you look at the Bible, you look at the first two chapters of Genesis, it's all about creation. It's about God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in between. It's about Him creating mankind. It's creating everything that we see, smell, touch, hear, feel, everything. And it's good. Until Satan comes on the scene and creates havoc. Until Satan comes on the scene and uses mankind's selfish desires against him. And we rebel. And through this rebellion, God is not only going to be pronouncing judgment, but He is going to be setting the groundwork for future events. Let's start off in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put the hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now this passage is what many theologians and scholars call the proto-evangelical. What it is, is is the first messianic prophecy that we get in the Bible. And when we unpack this verse a little more, what we're going to see is that God is explaining to Satan, who is the personification of all evil, he's going to explain to him that there's going to be a woman who's going to give a birth, and guess what, your reign of tyranny is done. Your reign of oppression, your reign of evil is done. The Son is going to destroy you. He's going to destroy evil. He's going to destroy death. And He's going to defeat death. And He's going to put to death once and for all the sin that took place here because of the fall of mankind. God is essentially telling him, man, your time is up. Next, look at Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 2, where we're going to see that God is going to take this big picture and he's going to narrow it down just a little bit by calling Abram, who later on will be known as Abraham. And he's going to make a covenant with Abram, telling him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And with all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now here what God is doing is he's setting the scene for the fact that the son that is mentioned in chapter 3 is going to come through the line of Abraham. 
Then we move over to Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 6, where it's going to say, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will be given the land, giving the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Okay. I know it's a little bit of a journey, but hang on because we've got a lot more to cover. We now have another piece of clarity, another piece of the puzzle in who this man that God is going to talk about, that he's talking about in Genesis 3, he's going to be through the line of Jewish kings. Now, one thing that's important to note here is that Israel doesn't have any kings at this point. It's going to be years before that happens because they still have to go into exile into Egypt before they even head towards the promised land, which is another 40 years before they even get their first king. So we're talking future down the road. But what we find now is that the man who's going to crush the head of sin and death and be wounded in doing so is not only going to come from the line of Abraham, but also from the line of kings. And during this time, while the people are hearing these prophecies, while they're dealing with what's future, their lives are in turmoil. Because death and destruction and the reign and rule of sin is controlling them. And as we read through the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, what we see is Moses is going to be explaining that, the, that God is going to be raising up a prophet, a king, and a priest among them to deliver them from all these things. But throughout the Old Testament, what we see are those three items, a prophet, a king, and a priest, are individuals. But then we get over to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, and we see that he's telling us that someone is coming that's going to culminate all three of those. And that individual is Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus, we have a prophet who seeks the truth, speaks the true word of God to us, a priest who atones for our sins, and a king who reigns and rules over all. In verse 17, we find Balaam prophesying about the distant future of Israel and the Messianic king that is coming. When he says, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star and a scepter will be here. A star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. Now both these references, star and scepter, are symbols of a glorious and powerful kingship that will not only subdue the enemies, but bring peace to the people. In our journey so far, we have seen that God has promised that a man will be born from a woman. He will be in the lineage of Abraham. He will come from the line of kings. He's going to defeat all evil. He's going to defeat death and put to death once and for all the sin that is plaguing mankind. But there's a couple of things we don't know yet. How's he going to come? How's this going to be a blessing to the nations? And how is he going to accomplish this kind of stuff? God has been a presence throughout the years with his children. 
working in their lives, helping them to learn the things that they need to learn in order to be ready for the fulfillment of His promise. And God is working in our lives right now. We go through trials, we go through struggles, and through those things, there are things we need to learn to be ready to come out on the other side. God is working amongst all of that to deliver on the other side. And He's saying, be patient. Wait. I've got something coming. I've got something for you. But we have to slow down. And we have to understand. Now we arrive at the book of Isaiah. And the announcement of how this will begin to take shape. Through his prophet Isaiah, there's going to be a declaration by God that there is going to be a miraculous and cosmic sign of his love and his power. Look at chapter 7 verse 14 with me. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. Okay, now there are a few things that we need to communicate, that's being communicated here in this passage alone that we need to understand. Number one, we're told that the baby will be born of a virgin. Which is foretelling the fact that the way our Savior is coming into this world is through a young maiden who has not yet had physical relations. And this is important because it's through this that a fully divine uh, God can be a fully human and not inherit the sinful nature of Adam. Second, the word Emmanuel, which is extremely important because Emmanuel is translated God with us. Which is telling us that God, who is rich in mercy, rich in love, is going to give up His heavenly comfort, put on bone and skin, and come and dwell in this world among us. Humbly laid in a manger. It's easy for us to think of God as somebody who is very active in creation, but then left us alone to fend for ourselves. Especially when you look around our world. But that is not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that God is there and He's loving and He's caring and He's looking out for His children and He has been all along. Oftentimes people will say, well, where's God in all this? Well, He's right there. We're the ones that shut Him out. We're the ones that turn because we think we know better or because we're looking forward to the future. And we miss the love and the blessings that are right in front of us. The third thing that we need to see here is the aspect of eating curds and honey. Now, curds and honey were basically the diet of a peasant. But for a king, for somebody who was powerful and wealthy, somebody who was almighty, they would be eating things like marrow and fatness and meat. Isaiah is pointing out the fact here that the coming Messiah will be intimately acquainted with the plight of the poor and oppression and darkness and hurt. For people that have walked in darkness, who have been oppressed, who have been enslaved, who have endured hardship of various kinds, there is freedom and there is peace and there is comfort coming. 
We can look at the Messiah and say, you know what? He knows what I'm going through. I'm hurting because I've lost somebody. He has too. I'm hurting because I'm struggling internally with decisions that I need to make. Well, guess what? He did too. All we have to do is spend time in God's Word and we'll see it. Spend time in the Gospel and we'll see it. And this brings us forward to Isaiah chapter 9. Where we're going to see some of the reasons why the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, are going to be attacking and hatred towards Jesus in future years. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We just turned another corner and seen for the first time in the prophetic literature that the promise of a Savior to come is not just a mere man who's going to show up, assume a throne, and wipe out Rome as an earthly king. But instead... This is God Himself, both fully human and fully divine. He is Emmanuel, God with us, coming to fix what is wrong, coming to bring about the ultimate destruction of darkness, slavery and oppression, and institute a reign of peace that our sins will be atoned for once and all, and that He will account us as righteous even though we're not. And this is a big deal. Let's look back and read that second half of that verse one more time. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now it's this kind of prophecy throughout the Old Testament that has led people to think and have a misunderstanding of how the Messiah was going to come and why they didn't recognize Him when He did. Because when you think of those words, what you're thinking of, just like they did, is you're thinking of this mighty warrior who's going to come in riding this white steed with a powerful army and he's going to crush everybody and wipe them out. But that is a selfish heart want. That's not the kingdom of God. And the people were misunderstanding. They were missing the point of what God's kingdom is and what it's not. Some of the problems that existed in the Roman Empire existed because of sinful hearts existing. Tyranny and oppression because of the fall of mankind. One of the things that needs to be fixed is the heart. And no kind of government will ever change that. It never has. We cannot make laws about morality. We cannot make laws to make men good because laws don't bring about good. Laws point out where we are broken. Laws point out where we're sinful. Laws point out that we need a Savior. And guess what? Most people don't want to hear that because that's reality speaking. And so we overlook that. But God is teaching us something through that if we will just listen. 
Okay, this brings us to the final passage that I want us to look at today. As we come to a better understanding of how God is fulfilling the promises He has made for years. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 4. It says, Yet He Himself bore our sickness and He carried our pains. But in turn we regarded Him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We have all gone astray. Like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquities of us all. How's the man born of a woman going to crush the head of sin and death? How are the nations going to be blessed? How does God solve our heart issue? He's going to take on himself our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion, our hatred, and in return extend to us his righteousness. Jesus took on God's wrath towards us and we were made holy in his sight. This is what's being prophesied about in Isaiah 53 and later we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the substance that lies behind the promise that God made years ago in the birth of a man born to a woman. The promise that he made that would repair and right all that has gone wrong. And he would do it through a son, a man, who would crush the head of the enemy. The narrative of the birth that takes place that night in a small town called Bethlehem is not about a God who has ever been distant. It is about a God who has always been working in our midst. In the Old Testament we see that he is a presence with his people setting them apart for their good and His glory. In the New Testament, it's through the life of Jesus Christ. And now today, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, guiding us. The Trinity. We have God working amongst us. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. It's the Gospel. God fulfilled His promise. That he made in Genesis 3.15. He fulfilled it by John 3.16. For God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son to die on the cross to take the wrath. To save us, to redeem us, to reconnect us back to him for all of eternity. He told Satan, your reign is over. And he's fulfilling that promise. Like he always does. When we come to that night, this is Christmas week. In a few days, we're going to celebrate. We're going to lift our voices up. We're going to come together as a church family. We're going to come together as our individual families. We're going to celebrate the birth of our Savior, but it's more than that. 
is so much more than the birth of our Savior, the birth of a baby. It's the day, it's the night that our Savior was born to die so that one day you and I could pray to Him to save us. The birth represents God coming and being with us, both fully human and fully divine. The birth leads us to the cross. And the cross gives us salvation and freedom over Satan's reign and rule of tyranny. So what are we celebrating that night in Bethlehem? We're celebrating the love and the mercy and the grace that our Heavenly Father so willingly poured out for us when we didn't deserve it and gave us His righteousness. If that's not cause to celebrate, I don't know what is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning so grateful for the many blessings that You've given us all the love that you've showered upon us. God, you've loved us in spite of who we are. And you sent your son for us. God, as we approach this year, this Christmas, as we approach that night, God, we just pray that you help us to not only see all the glam and everything around us with the lights and the presence and the music and all of that, but God, that we remember what that night truly held and that that night held freedom. We thank you and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.